0: A Podcast One production. Is there enough to go around... That's one of the oldest and most important of all questions. In the last few decades, historians have come to learn that most of the major conflicts over the last 2,000 years were fights for resources. Because when you feel that maybe there isn't enough to go around, you're ready to go to war, to fight, to get yours. But what if we've got it all wrong? What if there is enough and we just don't know? G'day, I'm Mark Pesci. The coming next billion seconds are the most important in human history as technology transforms the way we live and work. On this second series, we continue our conversations with some of the brightest minds shaping our world, charting our path as we voyage into an incredible future. In this episode, we talk to polymath and energy futurist Ramesh Nam about whether civilization as we know it will soon go flat or whether a different fate awaits. Powering up, ...on this episode of The Next Billion Seconds. Back in 1973, a short war changed the world. In October of that year, Egypt and Syria invaded Israel. The USA backed Israel, Israel won the war... ...and the losers deployed an economic weapon, an oil embargo. Within weeks, the U.S. economy plunged into crisis. Factories closed because they didn't have the fuel to operate machinery... At the few stations selling petrol, people waited in queues for hours. And the price of fuel doubled, then tripled nearly overnight. A nation, used to a boundless supply of cheap energy, suddenly had to factor energy consumption into every aspect of life. No one wanted a huge petrol-guzzling Cadillac. Everyone wanted a thrifty Toyota. And that's how America lost its crown as the automobile manufacturer to the world. On the home front, families living in houses heated by oil faced difficult financial decisions. Where I grew up, if you didn't heat, you died. All of that got my father and my uncle to thinking, wasn't there a better way to deal with this crisis? The technologies for solar heating of water and homes, they'd been around for a long time. So why not set up shop as builders, providing homeowners with a cheap and clean alternative to expensive fossil fuels? they formed Power Engineering Solar Construction Enterprises. Now, if that name sounds like a bit of a mouthful, just note that the initials spell out my last name, P-E-S-C-E. Now, before they could sell their solar systems to anyone, they had to learn how to install these systems for themselves. So my own home, my own suburban home, became the test case. And over the summer of 1975, contractors swarmed over the roof of our ranch house, installing 10 of the latest and greatest generation of solar heating panels. They installed a 2,000-liter water heater, enough to tide our home over for at least two days of winter clouds. And after that, the gas furnace would kick on. But that's actually something that very rarely happened. I loved our cute suburban house with the weird solar panels covering the roof. It stood out in our neighborhood, probably the only home like that in our entire town. And it worked. It cost less than $50 to heat our home that winter. The rest of the energy came free from the sun. Our guest today knows a lot about that past, this present, and the coming future of energy. There's a lot you can say about Rames Nam, but I'll touch on three key points. First, Rames was a key engineer at Microsoft as it grew to become the biggest technology company in the world. Rames retired from Microsoft twice to launch a career as a science fiction novelist. The Nexus trilogy, Nexus, Crux and Apex, established him as one of the leading thinkers in post-human fiction with Apex winning the Philip K. Dick Award. And if all of that weren't enough, most recently, Ramis has become one of the most highly regarded energy futurists in the world. He knows the story of energy and where it's all going. So it's a great pleasure to welcome Rames to The Next Billion Seconds. Welcome.
1: Mark, thank you so much. It's an honor to be here and great to see you again. It's been many years. It has been a few years. So you call yourself an energy futurist. What does that mean? Well, I look at the trends that are shaping energy and how technology is driving a revolution in energy. I think your last series was about robotics, and so we see how computing is getting exponentially cheaper, driving our ability to make better robots. Something similar is happening in energy. Solar panels have plunged in price, batteries are plunging in price, and that is hugely disruptive to the old way that we generate energy by extracting fossil fuels from the ground.
0: Okay, so when you say that solar is plunging in price, and solar panels, you mean what we would think of as photovoltaic panels, so the panels that
1: turn sunlight directly into electricity? That's right. So the solar heating that you talked about is a bit different. I'm talking about, yeah, solar photovoltaic panels that capture sunlight, produce electricity. Those panels, uh, when I was born, 1973, cost about $100 for a watt of power. Today, they cost about $0.30 for a watt of power, a 300 times price reduction, and it's not over. Just like cell phones, laptops, computers get cheaper, solar technology, battery technology are continuing to drop in price and will disrupt everything. Okay, so this is interesting because I do know that when my
0: father and uncle were thinking about starting the firm, they did look at solar photovoltaics, and it was simply ridiculously expensive in 1975. You know, you're know, you talking $300 a watt when you were born, or $100 a watt when you were born. And it probably still would have been very close to that price. What was it that changed to close the gap
1: from that down to $0.30 cents a watt today? It's really been innovation, uh, somewhat in the panels, but more so in the manufacturing. What's happened is the panels themselves have gotten better, they've gotten more efficient. There's been a lot of science, basic physics gone into how do you make silicon panels that can absorb more of the sunlight. But what's really had the bigger effect is that the factories and manufacturing process have gotten larger, more automated, less energy-intensive And that's made everything cheaper.
0: All right. This brings up a really interesting question that people use when they try to discount whether solar is the future. And that they say, look, if you take a look at the amount of energy it takes to actually make a solar panel and then subtract the amount of energy that that panel is going to produce over its lifetime then it's a wash, and you're really not saving any money. But what you're saying is that's not actually true?
1: Yeah, in 1970 that might have been true. Mm-hmm. Today, if you build a solar panel and deploy it in some place like Australia, and you count the energy, not just for making it, but for transporting it, the labor to take it out to the desert, the wiring, the mounting system it's on, all of it, mm. you pay back that amount of energy in the first year. And it operates for about 30 years. So you've got a 30 times return on your energy investment, which is fantastic. Okay, so now
0: that we're seeing, and and I know part of what we're seeing is that the Chinese are coming online with huge manufacturing capability, as are the Germans. As these huge solar manufacturing resources come online, how is that starting to change the way that I guess nations and businesses and individuals, and maybe we should take those all apart and deal with them differently, are starting to think about energy.
1: Yeah, it's a massive disruption. So I was in uh, Dubai just yesterday, and in the Emirates, uh, they had a record-setting deal last year in Abu Dhabi. Uh, to give you a context, a new coal-powered or a natural gas-powered power plant will produce electricity at 6 or 7 US cents per kilowatt hour, Mm -hmm. 6 or 7 cents per unit. In Abu Dhabi, with no subsidies, they had a solar deal signed for a 20-year lifetime of this deal at 2.4 cents. So they're basically figuring that if the panels last 30 years
0: you know on average then the cost over that even if it's higher at the beginning the cost by the end will average out to being sort of two and a half cents per
1: kilowatt. Yeah so the, a private company mm. built is building that facility and so they've done the math on what's their labor cost to install the panels what are the panels the cost of the land and what's the degradation rate how fast do they get worse how much do they have to spend cleaning dust off the panels and their math said we can bid at cents and make a profit and there were four other bidders that all came in under three cents so four different companies bid at less than half the price of a coal power plant then why would anyone build or and
0: is anyone building coal powered plants anymore i mean the
1: indians are right we're almost done so in january of last year China announced the cancellation of 104 coal power plants that they had planned to build. By the end of the year, that rose to 151. 40 of them had already started construction. Billions of dollars spent that they just wrote off because they see that there's no future for that technology. There's still a handful of coal power plants under construction around the world, but very, very few the pipeline of new coal power plants has shrunk by 90, 95% in just the last year and a half. So this is effectively what happened to
0: nuclear power post Three Mile Island, right? Where <laughs> the, the actual, the funnel of number of plants that were being planned basically went to zero for a lot. I mean, I think there's one or two plants that are being built now, but there basically haven't been people building nuclear power plants for about 30, 35 years.
1: Yeah, there's a bit of a an attempt to build nuclear in China and India, but basically in the US it's done, in, mm. in Europe it's done. That, I think a fair bit of that was driven by fear, though mm. some by economics. The end of coal construction is really driven by economics. So in China, they don't care about the fact that it's putting particulate into the air and mercury into the air and all the other things. They do care about that. So that's an added factor, yeah. is that social license for coal plants has basically gone away. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, China is not a democracy in any way, no. but the Chinese government is somewhat responsive to their people and that they see that without permission of their people, they can't exist. So I think the Chinese Communist Party sees pollution as an existential threat to its rule
0: a long-term existential threat like not because the year is bad today but because the air is bad
1: going forward well and the air has been bad for decades that's Mm. why you see uh chinese wealthy families going to the u.s to have their babies Mm. to have a child that gets u.s citizenship it's why you see them why is people why do people in china mine bitcoin Because there's currency controls, but basically they can buy electricity in China, turn it into Bitcoin that is not controlled, and they can get their money out. So the Chinese elites live in the cities. They live under the smog, Mm. and that's not tolerable to them. And pollution has been the number one driver of protests in China. So the, the Chinese government sees that they have to do something about that, and that combines with this other factor, they see the economics are driving it to the point that solar or wind in some cases will just be cheaper than using coal. All
0: right, now what about India? India has enormous coal reserves, and we know that, and they are. They had been building coal plants. Do we see that same change happening
1: in India? Yeah, it's just starting to, and we just hit the tipping point last year. So China's coal consumption peaked around 2013 mm-hmm. and global coal consumption peaked around 2013. Uh, Peabody Coal, the biggest private sector coal company in the world, went bankrupt in 2016. Rio Tinto, biggest mining company operating in Australia, said, second second biggest behind BHP. Oh, second biggest, thank you, said just uh, in November that they were getting out of coal entirely. But the hope of those companies still in coal mining was India, was that Mm. India would keep rising in its coal consumption. India is a lot more poor than China. They have a lot less energy. They need to build more energy. But last year, we had two record-setting deals in India. The cheapest of them was 20% cheaper than building a new coal power plant in India. And not just that, it was probably cheaper than the operating cost of about a quarter of India's Fleet, meaning that even if you'd built a coal plant, it was cheaper to build a new solar plant and take the write-off on the old coal plant than <laughs> just to keep it running. Right. So that is a a big point of disruption for India.
0: So when you're talking about sort of the the, the oligarchs in India mm-hmm. making decisions about where they're going to put their capital, they realize that they can get more of a capital gain out of now making a solar investment than they can out of making a, a coal investment.
1: Well, and more than that, that they're Quite possibly risking a major loss, taking a, a bath on coal. Right. So, are we going to see then? Uh, I mean, if we're, uh,
0: where are we going to see China in terms of its installed base of renewables,
1: say, in around twenty thirty? Yeah. So we have to understand that that this is not as fast as mobile phones mm. taking over. Um, We build power plants or transmission lines to operate for 30, 40, 50 years. There's tens of trillions of dollars of capital. So it's still solar is now about 2% of world electricity. It's tiny. But it took 20 years to get to the first 1% of power being from solar. It took two years to get to it being 2%. It'll take about one more year for it to get to 3%. So it's explosive. Mm-hmm. So by 2030, China could be 20 25% clean power between solar and, and wind and with a bullet. Right. And... W- Does India then sort of enter that at an even higher level because essentially they're building new infrastructure rather than replacing older infrastructure? That's right. I think India will go faster than China for two reasons. One is they have to build a whole lot more new power. Where China, uh, power demand is going up but not as quickly. So Mm. with China, there's more replacement. But India has to build three or four times as much electricity as it has today by 2050. And two... India is just plain sunnier. It's not as sunny as Australia, but it's one of the sunniest parts of the world. We'll we'll come to Australia. (laughs) I'm saving
0: Australia for a little bit later on because, uh, yes, I I think we have some, some ground to till there. Now, do we see the same thing now happening in Africa, which, again, has relatively small electrical distribution grids at this point and is going to need massive electricity to support a fairly urban, fairly industrialized culture over the middle years of the 21st century.
1: Yeah, oddly, solar is really just getting started in Africa right now, I think for a couple of reasons. One is you need to be able to borrow money at a reasonable rate of credit mm. to build something, mm-hmm. and Africa hasn't had that. And two is you know maybe 500 million, 600 million Africans don't have electricity, right most of them just don't have a grid connection to their house. So what's really starting to take off in Africa is decentralized solar, is rooftop solar, not the big uh, mega plants that we talk about in other parts of the world. And that, too, has been hampered by a lack of um, banking. We talk about the unbanked. People that have never used a financial institution live only in a cash economy. And that's been, most of Africa... What's changing that is mobility. Uh, Cell phones, mobile minutes have become the currency. And when you look at the innovative startups driving solar for individual home scale or village scale in Africa, they're tying into that. They take mobile money as payment, and it's pay-as-you-go solar. It's just like you top up your phone, you top up your solar. So I've actually
0: heard, I think it's m is one of the companies and they will actually sort of, they'll effectively lease you a panel for the top of your hut and it's literally the top of your hut and it will keep the mobile phone charged and it will run a light so the kids can read books at night which is actually a big deal because we want the kids to study. They actually have to be able to read when there's no light and lanterns are expensive because they're using expensive fuel. And you pay for it every day, and if you don't pay for it on that particular day, <laughs> like Scrooge
1: from on high, a flip, a switch will flip inside the unit and, and your power will be turned off. That's right. And that sounds cruel, but it's the way to finance it. When these families are capital poor... But right? we should also point out, after 18 months, they own it outright. That's right. Yeah. So, and you see, MCOPA is the, the payment system. Um, off-grid electric is an example of one of the companies that actually does the the solar installation. And uh, when you talk to the, the uh, off-grid electric folks, what they will tell you is that the aspirational level, the level that every family wants to get to, is not just the solar and the cell phone charging and four lights for the kids, it's the television. Mm-hmm. So that's their mm-hmm. most popular product, yep. The most popular bundle, is the one that gives you an entry-level TV. Which means, presumably
0: then, uh, if there's a television manufacturer, they would smartly manufacture a very energy-efficient set be able to be sold into those markets.
1: Yeah, indeed. Um, Off Grid Electric worked with energy with um, television manufacturers to have custom, mm. high-efficiency TVs made for this market. Yeah. So you can see how this all works, is that once you actually get that footprint in there,
0: once you actually get people who have access to the power that they're generating themselves and they own, they can make decisions about how they use that power budget. That's right. Okay, so this is so we're seeing i guess centralized in india and china that makes sense they're highly centralized civilizations in africa it's being much more sort of loosey-goosey and decentralized that's going to work well for them what if you're a business in africa what if you're a business in china what if you're a business in india and of course most of these would be small businesses
1: but how do you now think about the energy needs of your business yeah, I mean, I think there's a few things I'd advise any uh, company that is energy intensive, small or big, want uh, us to think about efficiency. Often, the cheapest energy is just figuring out how to do the same thing with less energy. And that's often a, a capital outlay out front, but that pays off quite rapidly. Simple things like swapping your incandescent bulbs for LEDs or better insulation. Of your facility and now there's companies that will come to you and say we'll do that for a zero down and you'll pay us monthly and we're gonna save you money every single month. And are boat.
0: those companies operating not just say in the developed world but are they operating in India and in China and in Africa?
1: They are starting to, yeah. yes. Um, second I I'd think about flexibility because now the price of energy is gonna vary more by geography and more by time, by hour of the day. So
0: So when the sun is not shining, is is electricity going to be more expensive because it's coming from storage? That's right. Exactly. Let's actually, this is a good point. Let's talk about storage because this is, I guess, one of the other points where things have been changing a lot, right? Solar, the argument's always been, well, it's great during the day, but how are you going to keep the lights on at night? And that argument
1: doesn't necessarily hold water anymore. It's starting not to. So, no one thinks it will just be solar everything. You can get to solar being 30 or 40% of power, uh, but you need to combine it with something. It so happens that wind is mostly counter-cyclical to solar. So the wind will blow at night, the sun will shine during the day. That's right. Wind can blow at any time, but statistically it's more at night. Mm. And in most parts of the world, there's more sun in the summer and more wind in the winter. Mm -hmm. So you put those together, maybe you can get 70% of power that way. And then batteries can fill a chunk of the rest. And batteries used to be absurdly expensive. Just totally impractical. Uh, But the price of lithium-ion batteries has dropped by 80%, a factor of five, just since 2010.
0: Okay, so that's now beginning of 2018 as we record this. So that's just a little over seven years. And of course, the, the, I guess the category definition of this is what's just happened in South Australia. Yes. Where basically because of a tweet sent by Mike Cannon Brooks, the founder of Atlassian, one of our best startups, to Elon Musk, the founder of uh, Sol- was City and SpaceX and Tesla, who manufacture the batteries, um, basically, can you come and solve this problem? And they installed a three hundred megawatt battery in a hundred days.
1: Yeah, I love that exchange. And, and you, if you go back to Twitter, I mean, this is exactly what Twitter is for. Mike says, "And Elon, can you give me Mate's pricing, please?" So it's just just utterly hilarious. Yeah, billionaire Mate's pricing. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. So that is the largest battery bank. In the world. Uh, Elon bet his batter, his statement was we'll get it done in a hundred days or it's free. Oh, it's free. <laughs> You can, it's like a cheap commercial on the telly, right? <laughs> it is. It, if you don't
0: like it after 100 days, folks, you can keep it.
1: Elon's got a flair for these things. <laughs> and they got a head start. You know, they, the 100-day countdown started from the permits were approved. The day the permits were approved, they were already had it half built. So that gave them some advantage. And this thing is making money
0: already. It's not just making money, but it's now... And sort of its point was to provide grid, grid resiliency. And it turns out it's not just doing that for South Australia, but because the connection is into Victoria,
1: it's also providing grid resiliency back into Victoria. That's right. And there's there's this um, fundamental market thing, right, which is that when demand for power is high and supply is low, the price of power in the wholesale market spikes. Mm.
0: Huh? And really, not, not like a little bit, it spikes a thousand percent.
1: Yeah, 5x, 10x. Yeah. And so the battery can sell that. Uh, conversely, if in the middle of the night, in South Australia, you actually have a lot of wind power, the wind is blowing hard, and there's very little demand. Middle of the night, the air conditioners are off, the appliances are off, the lights are off. The power price drops to zero, sometimes below zero. Right. So the battery says, okay, we'll take that power. <laughs> and, and, we'll buy and you can it. pay us for it. Yeah, you can pay us for it, or we'll buy it dirt cheap. Right. And it, so it charges it up. So it's an arbitrage play. Uh, it, arbitraging those two prices. And arbitraging those prices is the way to provide stability. Right? Okay.
0: so we take this out. Now, I I, uh, was part of a summit a few years ago when we decided we were going to stop manufacturing cars in Australia, which was sort of a weird, almost collective decision that was made about four years ago. All of the auto manufacturers came together. And there was a big summit about this. And there was a lovely fellow who gave a talk about electric cars. And he said, the thing you really need to understand about electric cars, it's a large battery on wheels. (laughs) And I immediately had this vision of fleets of cars sort of rolling themselves where they could go sip cheap energy and then rolling off to somewhere where the energy was going to be where they knew just because of the heat pattern in the country where the energy was going to be more expensive tomorrow and discharging their batteries in the grid like that. Do
1: you think we'll see something like that happen? I don't think we'll see that happen. But I think uh, where they won't move from place to place, they will also help that arbitrage by hour of the day. Mm. So in Australia, in the long run, middle of the day will be the cheapest power. Because right? we get most most solar. That's right. It hasn't been because it's been the most demand, so it's been on the highest price. But we see it starting to happen in, in California already. And so the logical best place and best time to charge electric vehicles is at noon when actually there's not that much demand for transport then because you really have a lot of transport in the morning and in the early evening during rush hour at noon they can sit around or at 1 p.m 2 p.m charge up when it's super cheap that's actually helping the grid
0: because it's taking that extra capacity out of the grid and and not not just wasting it that's right we're speaking to ramas nam we will be back right after this This is The Next Billion Seconds, and we're back talking to energy futurist Ramez Nam. So Ramez, I don't know if you saw it, but there is a particular image that is now, I think maybe one of the central defining statements of where Australia is in 2018. So last year in the parliament, on the floor of the House of Representatives, so the main chamber, the ruling party brought in a large lump of coal into, and they're not supposed to bring props in, into the Parliament and they all passed it around and they praised the coal. You know, and it was it was a thing. And I and this is a photo. There's a photo of the treasurer, Scott Morrison, looking very happily upon this coal in the Parliament. And this photo sums so much up. And I really want to sort of dive into this because we can tell this incredible tale of this transformation. And There seems to be such a level of vested interest in a fossil fuel economy and a fossil fuel culture that in some way we're going to have to figure out how to undo that, how to back that out, how to pry it off civilization if we expect to be able to execute that trans if we want to execute that transition. And you must see this as well, because you must get
1: people who go, but fossil fuels are important. They've built the civilization. They're really important to the future. How do we actually frame that? Well, first, that sounds utterly hilarious. I have not seen that image, but we're going to have that in history books oh, in yeah. 20, 30, 40 years. Oh. Um, so, A, fossil fuels have gotten us here. The Industrial Revolution happened in 1850 in England, and if we had not started burning coal, then we wouldn't have the civilization that we have. So I I don't think anyone should deny that. And at the time, we didn't know what the risks were, we didn't know how bad air pollution could be. So you could kind of see it. Back then, Oh, I think London in the 1880s, you could tell how bad it was. <laughs> yes, you, you could tell a bit by the, yeah. the color of the moths that survived. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Um, and certainly we didn't understand about, about climate change. We didn't no. understand, you know, air pollution kills 6 million people a year, mm. according to the World Health Organization. That's 10 times as many people as all murders and warfare combined each year. So we didn't know all that. Now we do. And so it's time to make the transition. But people also need a bottom line argument, is what I find. And so I think what you're going to find is that uh, as business really starts to see, look, it just makes more financial sense for us to do this clean energy, which is also what the populace wants, that's going to increase the power to get the right policies enacted.
0: So the interesting thing is, The businesses in Australia, the people who are operating the coal stations have been shutting them down because they've maybe reached the end of their 40-year lifespan and it's uneconomic to make the investment to upgrade them. So they're trying to shut them down and the government's trying, at least in Australia, to offer them subsidies in order to stay open to burn coal.
1: Yeah, and we've seen similar things in the U.S. And at this point, I consider the transition mostly inevitable. It's no longer a question of if, it's a question of when. But the when matters enormously. If you think about climate, we're in a race between how fast we can make the transition and how fast we do the damage. So Mm. we need to move faster, not slower. Uh, So
0: what arguments do we use with the people who seem implacably committed to a fossil fuel future? How do we actually help them to come along this ride, so that, or at least get them to stop
1: resisting? You know, I'll tell you that the argument that I used to make was here's the damage we're doing to the planet, and here's what we need to do to stop it. And I found that that fell on largely deaf ears. People either already knew that, mm. um, or they bristled at that. And so the argument that I make now that works and the data shows that this sort of argument works better is you can make money this way. If you invest in fossil fuels, you're going to lose money. This can be an export sector for you. This can create jobs for you. And this is the right thing for your kids and your grandkids.
0: Yeah. So, well, the last one is essentially an, uh, an emotional argument, but it's interesting because I, I'm pretty sure that the one that would resonate is that the investment is uh, in fossil fuels is a poor business, a bad business investment. Like In some ways, that's the most hard-headed argument at all. It's not that there's a profit motive, but that people are more afraid of losses
1: than they are interested in gains. It's true. There's loss aversion. So I start a lot of my talks on energy talking about the bankruptcy of Peabody Coal. Mm. Largest private sector coal company in the world went from billions and billions in revenue to suddenly bankrupt. And the Global index of coal company stocks dropped ninety percent over four years, and that opened some eyes. and And I use that to talk about, hey, it's going to happen to oil too. Uh, but even in coal, I think it's quite vital. And so you look at things like uh, the Carmichael uh, coal mine for Adani. I know it's sort of it's on again, off again here. It'll probably be a big issue in the next election. A billion dollars in government guarantees of those loans. That's a very bad bet. That money is never going to be paid back. That's just a billion dollars of taxpayer money wasted. So that's that's my standpoint. Even if you ignore climate change, mm. even if you don't think climate change is real, that's the trends. The world is using less coal every year, more or less. And in a market where a commodity is going down in demand, you're not going to get a premium price.
0: You're catching a falling knife, I believe is yes. the phrase that investors <laughs> yes. like to use. Exactly. All right, let's play a different sort of game, all right? We know that in terms of watts per square meter, Australia receives more solar energy than any other continent in the world by a rather large margin. So we already know that in some ways Australia is set up to be the best solar generator that there is in terms of land area on the planet. If over the next billion seconds, over the next 30 years, Australia made consistent investments in generation and distribution, could you imagine that perhaps all of Indonesia and all of Malaysia and Singapore were powered using Australian generated solar energy?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, this sort of uh, intercontinental uh, transmission of power. It's not really
0: even intercontinental. These are all very short yeah, distances. It's regional.
1: So if you look in Europe, there are high-voltage DC lines that okay. connect the nations, not as much as should be, but many of them go uh, underwater for spans of tens of kilometers. Mm. We know how to do that. We've run telecommunications cables across the entire Pacific and Atlantic, so that is totally doable, and that could be an export market for Australian power. There's a second way to export power, and it's the Icelandic yes. model. Iceland has very cheap power due to geothermal. Iceland has very little else in the way of natural resources. But Iceland is the world's one of the world's largest exporters of aluminum. They have no Because
0: aluminum, aluminum is literally electricity that's been turned into metal.
1: More or less. They, they don't have any bauxite ore, which is what aluminum comes from. But people ship bauxite ore to Iceland, and the Icelandic uh, industries use their cheap electricity to turn it into finished aluminum. Okay. So there's other sectors like that, where it's energy intensive, that having very cheap energy, which Australia could have, could power and export economy.
0: And as it turns out, we're really good at exporting metallic commodities in this country. It's, I think, behind our agricultural exports, it's our number two export. I think it's agriculture, um, mining commodities, and then education are our three top exports in this country. So we already have, I guess, export infrastructure that's geared toward that. So if we... What would it take, do you suppose, to focus the minds of the people in this country who allocate capital, whether that's the Reserve Bank or the four big banks or Macquarie Bank, to be able to focus on building these kind of infrastructure projects that clearly would make a lot of money for the nation?
1: I think it's starting to happen. You saw that uh, all of the Australian banks passed on the opportunity to fund uh, the Carmichael coal mine, yes, they're not dummies. I uh, spent some time with uh, the heads of UBS here, and I think they see the world pretty clearly. So I think it takes uh, some combination of entrepreneurs saying, I'm going to make X happen. Let me show you how it's going to make amazing return, whether it's the sort of thing that Elon did or other uh, entrepreneurs, and showing that financial payoff to the banks. And a forward-looking bank taking a chance on some of these things and then showing enormous profits, the other banks will follow. So
0: we already see now Saudi Arabia is doing some enormous solar installations, right? Mm-hmm. And we see that they're planning for a post fossil fuel future, which is really funny because they're sitting on most of the oil. Do you think that maybe there's going to be a bank that comes out of Riyadh that will end up funding this? Is that their transition path? If you're talking about a bank that's going to take risks, they've already made their fortune off of energy. Are they going to maybe put cards on the table around the world for that?
1: It's possible. It could be out of Riyadh. It could be out of Dubai or the UAE. It it could be out of China. Uh, the, the Chinese investment bank, chaired by an Australian, uh, has been investing still in coal projects around the world, sort of as a way to have employment still for mm-hmm. their coal engineers who no longer can build coal plants in China. But they spent $150 billion on solar projects in China last year, something on that order, more than $100 billion. And they have a heavy interest in investing in infrastructure around the world. So it would not surprise me to see them uh, funding projects even here in Australia.
0: Okay, so we go out a billion seconds, so about 2050. The energy mix, 30% solar, 30% wind, some percentage battery. What percentage are we still using what we would think of as old-fashioned fuels for?
1: So when we look at... so. Energy is multiple things. Electricity is one big chunk. Transport is another big chunk. And there's a mix of uh, sort of manufacturing and heating buildings and so on. If we look at electricity, the one that we can understand the best, the next 60, 70, 80% decarbonization looks straightforward. How do we close the last uh, 10 or 20% is still up in the air, in part because of the intermittency issues and limits and what you can store. So that's the big question. But I think by 2050, we're looking at 80% of electricity being clean. We're looking at 80% of cars on the road being electric. We still have issues with shipping and planes. Those are the ones that are harder to get to. And we're looking at more and more manufacturing being uh, electric as well, and that electricity being clean. Ramazdham, thank you very
0: much for joining us on The Next Billion Seconds. My pleasure, Mark. So now let's go back to about 1976. Jimmy Carter gets elected president, and pretty soon thereafter, he gets Congress to pass a bunch of tax credits so that people who get solar systems installed will pay them off faster. And you run the numbers on these, and if you're using oil... The whole heating system will pay itself off in about five years, and this is very attractive to families in New England. And so, my uncle and my father have quite a nice business going, installing across roofs across New England and saving families money on their heating bills. And that went on for about five years. And the next election happened, and Ronald Reagan was elected president. And one of Ronald Reagan's first acts was to cancel those tax credits. And all of a sudden, my father's business dried up, and they had to close the doors. So there's a real relationship here to how we want our energy future to be, and the energy future that we get. The decisions that we make, and that we ask governments to make on our behalf, has a real, tangible impact. Because 20 years later, in America, when energy became expensive again. They'd spent 20 years just using the same fossil fuels, and people were stuck exactly where they were in 1973. We'll be linking to Ramesh Nam's website and materials relating to the future of energy, so be sure to look for that. Did all of this talk get you energized? If so, we'd like to hear from you. Drop by our LinkedIn page, send us a message on Twitter, Tell us what you want to know about the future. We'll do our best to bring it to you in a future episode. The Next Billion Seconds is recorded for Podcast One. Recording and production assistance is provided by Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Audiogram by Dee Hawala. Music by Kirk Godfrey. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or the Podcast One app. This is Mark Pesci. Thanking you for listening.